Hello, Mr. Place. Hello, Mr. Cummins. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Uh, Happy New Year uh, to everybody. Happy New Year to you and to everybody else as well. Right, folks, I'm just going to start going through a uh, kind of brief explanation of the outline of the essay, and then I'll hand over to Mr. Place, who will give you the background to the essay to kind of give you some context that will help you with the introduction. I'll then just outline the five giants and kind of explain the task we were doing last week, which will then lead in to the next part, which is actually completing the essay. So this this week you're going to be setting out and, and actually doing your essay, which will look at the Labour reforms of 1945 to 51. These reforms were different acts and different ways that the government tried to tackle the issue of poverty in Britain between 1945 and 51, so the years just following the, the war. Okay, so you will need to look at the five giants, which we'll talk about in a minute or two. You need to assess each of those giants and the way they were tackled by the Labour government. And at the end of that, make a judgment, did the Labour reforms of 1945 to 51 actually effectively tackle the issue of poverty. So just a wee reminder, the question you will be doing for a week on Monday is to what extent were the Labour reforms of 1945 to 51 effective in meeting the needs of the British people? And as usual, that is 22 marks. So what I'll do now is I'll hand over to Mr Place to give you the background. So if we think about uh, this question, we need to obviously put it into its historical context. And our main historical context in this uh, part is going to be looking at the effect of the Second World War had on Britain. Uh, not just in terms of the amount of people that died and you know people going off and fighting, but also the impact it had on different levels of society within Britain as well. Now, throughout the Second World War, the country was run by a government which is made up of different political parties within Britain, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. And this coalition government was obviously led by Winston Churchill. Now, during the war, to make sure that the war effort was still going on kind of successfully at home and that everybody was doing their bit, the government became much more involved in people's lives. Uh, you might know, for example, things like the Keep Calm and Carry On posters being ordered for the blackouts, rationing and what like. So as part of the, as part of the war effort, the government organised various different aspects, like the rationing of food, clothing, uh, giving fuel, extra milk to expected mothers, sending uh, children off during the evacuation as well. And all this kind of government involvement was something that hadn't really been done before. I know we looked at the Liberals at the start of the 20th century, about 50 years before, and that's the real kind of start of the government moving from that kind of old attitude of kind of leaving people alone. By the end of the start of the Second World War, beginning, governments are kind of playing a much more important role, and the coalition government is really, really important to make sure that everyone in Britain is ultimately safe. So why is this important? Well, people actually welcome the fact that the government are playing a kind of key role in their lives. And when the war ends, they don't want that kind of to actually stop. They like the fact that the governments are actually helping the kind of the most needy in society. And taking an interest in the welfare of people. So during the Second World War, uh, around about 1942, uh, a report is commissioned by a guy called William Beveridge, who is going to look into the social problems of Britain, because what the government wanted to look at was say, after the Second World War, what kind of country is it that we 
hoping to actually have. How do we help the poorest within society? So William Beveridge uh, completed this massive report, as you may be aware, uh, which basically highlighted five social problems or five social giants that were um, issues with Britain. These were want, ignorance, squalor, disease and idleness. And what William Beveridge argued was that if Britain was to come out of the Second World War a lot stronger and a lot better and a lot healthier for its people, then all these social giants were going to have to be challenged all at the same time. And these were basically the basis of Labour's welfare reforms. So when Labour were elected in 1945, they took William Beveridge's uh, report and this was the basis of the welfare state. So your job then and your essay is going to be to assess how well Labour did in eradicating these five giants. You're going to need to think about, did they completely meet the needs of the British people? Did they fail to meet the needs? Or did they do it to an extent? You're going to need to look at the reforms that they introduced, and you're going to need to think about, right, what was a positive point and what was a negative point? So if we're going to talk, for instance, about the social giant of want, you're going to want to think about what were the positives that Labour's welfare reforms and tackling want were? And then also think about, well, did they come up short somewhere? So I'm going to pass on back to Mr Cumming now, uh, who's going to uh, talk about a wee bit more about the detail of what's needed in the essay. OK, so just a wee reminder again, to, as you're going through this, so want is just poverty and lack of money. Squalor is poor housing and the problems that come from that. Disease is just ill health. Ignorance is a lack of education, and idleness is not working, okay? So basically, just to finish this off, this wee segment, we're talking about the work you did before Christmas. You, you had a slide that would have been given to you in class, it was on the board, and it was in the PDF of the Labour Reforms um, work that you were sent. In that, the PowerPoint slide asked you to introduce the giant and explain what that giant was. That kind of gives background to a marker. You then have to look at the main acts, the main things that were done by the Labour government in order to try and tackle that giant. Okay, so there's a National Insurance Act or the National Health Service, whatever was brought in to try and tackle it. You then describe the act and what it did to try and tackle the giant. That's your knowledge points. Okay, and then you're going to start analysing it. And by doing that, you would then give a strength of the act that is brought in. Okay, something that was good, something that effectively tackled. Uh, that issue of poverty, and then you're going to counter that with however and start looking at the weaknesses of the Act. It may be in some cases that some of the Acts you look at are actually very good and completely work. That way you would just give more information on the benefits of it. But most cases it will be a weakness, and that is a way of getting your analysis plus. Once you've done that, you could then start to attempt your overall evaluation for that factor. Okay, And the overall evaluation is a kind of mini-conclusion that looks at how well overall was that giant tackled, taken in all the different acts that you've looked at within that paragraph. Was it tackled well? Was it tackled better than any other giants? Did it, did it actually get rid of poverty? And remember, you must have one new piece of information in the evaluation in order to pick up the evaluation mark. Okay, so that is the end of that segment. Hello to both higher history classes, hope you're doing okay. Today Mr Pless and I are going to talk you through how the Labour government attempted to tackle the giant of want, which is lack of money, 
I'll then hand over to Mr Place, who's going to talk you through the key successes and then the failures of the Labour government's attempts to tackle poverty. And then I'll come back in for a couple of minutes to talk to you briefly about analysis, analysis plus and evaluation. And then we'll, throughout the day, we'll be recording more of the Giants. So first of all, I'm going to talk you through the four key acts that were brought in. The first act was 1946, the National Insurance Act, which was passed and covered the individual for sickness, unemployment, old age, pension, widow's pension, orphan's pension, maternity and death grants. It's compulsory comprehensive insurance against most eventualities. It provided sickness benefit for as long as you were sick, an unemployment benefit for six months, retirement pension and a widow and maternity benefit. The next one is Family Allowances Act of 1945, which provided five shillings per week for each child after the first. The same year as that, the Industrial Injuries Act was passed. This act made the insurance against industrial injury compulsory for all employees. Under the terms of this act, industrial injury benefits were to be paid at a higher rate for sickness, ordinary sickness. The final one we're going to look at is the National Assistance Act, which was passed in 1948. It provided benefits for those covered by the National Insurance Act. National Assistance Boards were set up to help citizens whose resources were insufficient to meet their needs, i.e. old people and very sick people. I'll hand over to Mr Place, who's going to talk you through the benefits and failures. Hi everybody. So, when we have a look at the successes of the Labour reforms, we're going to say what they did and what they did not do. But just before we do, if we have a uh, brief kind of remembrance of what William Beveridge had argued when he was talking about tackling the five giants, William Beveridge had recommended a, a, a social security system that would be comprehensive, meaning that it would cover all problems relating to poverty from birth to death or from cradle to grave, to use the phrase. It was to be universal, which would mean that it was available to everybody. It was contributory, which would mean that people would make payments to the scheme through their wages. It was supposed to be non-means tested, which meant that benefits were available to all, regardless of their ability to pay. And it was to be compulsory, where all workers would have to contribute to the scheme. Now, when Labour came into power in 1945, a new Prime Minister Clement Attlee proposed the new welfare state. He planned to create a welfare state which would deal with the five giants based on what William Beveridge had argued. So, in tackling the question of want then, or the giant of want, what did the Labour do? Well, the National Insurance gave financial help to the unemployed and the sick. It gave pensions to all old age people. Help was given for costs like bedding and funerals. National assistance boards were set up and the national assistance gave help to all unemployed, sick and elderly people who were not covered by the national insurance. So in a sense, this was an extra layer of uh, protection, a safety net if you like. Minimum living conditions for unemployed were the same across the whole country. The Industrial Injuries Act gave several things. It was compulsory for all workers. It gave short and long-term help, and the Act actually gave benefits that were higher than what the sickness benefits were as well. Where did Labour come up short, though? Well, the reforms for one, there were some problems. The insurance scheme was very, very expensive to run. The welfare benefits were only 19% of the average industrial wage, which wasn't enough for people to live on. 
Many people, as a result, still lived in incomes which were below the acceptable levels. The national insurance benefits only covered people who had actually made 156 contributions, so this meant that it actually took some time for the benefits to kick in. More people than expected had to apply for the national assistance to get money to, enough money to live on, and most of these people were the elderly. By 1949, nearly half of the cost of the national insurance, national assistance, sorry, went on topping up the old age pensions. Again, this was supposed to be the safety net, but it becomes very, very expensive. The national assistance was also means-tested, which meant that the elderly did not apply because they thought that this was a stigma to the benefits. And finally, the industrial injuries benefit were paid by the government, not, employee, not employers, which meant that the taxpayer had to pay for the poor uh, working conditions. So in summary, when we think about tackling the question of want, what was successful? Well, the national insurance, the industrial injuries and the national assistance acts meant that everyone would be given help from the cradle to the grave. But the problem was that it was very, very expensive and the scheme needed a lot of people to administer, administer them. Not everyone was covered by the National Insurance Act and only those people who had paid a certain level of contributions were covered. This meant that the safety net did not cover everybody. Okay, so I'm briefly going to talk you through Analysis and Analysis Plus. If you look back to your original slide that we were looking at before the Christmas holidays, which was slide 9 of the PDF and the PowerPoint, which broke down how to do, tackle each giant and look at what the Labour government did. You remember what you should do for each giant in your paragraphs is introduce the giant, explain what it was. You then, for your knowledge, you explain what the giant was and what the main acts were to tackle it and you describe how that was done. For your analysis, you should be trying to explain the strengths of the new acts. Did it work? How did it work well? And then counter that for analysis plus with the weaknesses of the new act. Okay, so an example of this would be for, for one, would be for when we're looking at the National Insurance Act and the Family Allowance Act. You could gain analysis by explaining one success so, for example, you could say that social provision was made for citizens from the cradle to the grave, catering for their needs from their time of birth to the time of their death. That's a success, that would be analysis. You could then counter that by saying, however, the scheme was criticised for the large number of officials needed to operate it, and others argued that the Act did not go far enough, as the national insurance benefit was restricted to those citizens who made up of 156 weekly contributions. That's analysis plus. You could also get analysis by giving two detailed points of success or two detailed points of limitations and weaknesses. Now remember, when it comes to evaluation, you need to include one new piece of information. So there are plenty of examples in your notes and on the PDF of limitations and successes. Remember, for evaluation, this is where you're basically going to explain whether or not did this was this giant tackled well overall by the Labour government and that will give an overall conclusion for that giant. Hello to both the higher history classes. This time Mr Pless and I are going to talk to you about how the Labour government attempted to tackle the giant of squalor, which of course is poor housing. I'll do the same as the last time, I'll briefly talk you through what was done. Mr Pless will then start to work through whether or not that was done well and what wasn't done as well and then it will, he'll come back to me for the end just to briefly talk to you about Analysis Plus. So in terms of what was actually done, 
It's important to remember the reason why there's a lot of poor housing in Britain. Well, there was always slum areas and a lot of overcrowding in many of the major cities. And it's, got, it's really important to remember that a lot of this was made worse by the bomb damage done during the war. So places like Clydebank in Scotland, Coventry in London down south were really badly damaged by the German Air Force bombing. To deal with the problem of squalor, the government concentrated on the building of decent homes for the working class after the war was finished. The government aimed at building 200,000 houses a year, and many of these were what was called prefabs, prefabricated houses which were assembled quickly on site. Some places in England and some places in Scotland still have these houses standing today. On top of that, the New Towns Act was passed in 1946, which laid down the plans for 14 new towns across Britain to reduce a lot of the overcrowding in the cities. Some of these new towns included Glenrothes and East Cobride in Scotland. And I'll hand over to Mr Place. Hello to both higher classes as well. So, we're going to look at what Labour, the Labour government did to deal with the housing shortage. And just like we did with the uh, tackling the, the question of want, we'll look at what the Labour government did and then what the Labour government didn't do with their reforms to deal with uh, the question of squalor. So, what did they do? For the first time, there was an attempt by nationally to coordinate a solution to the housing problem by a government. This hadn't been done before, so we'd class that as a positive. The 1946 and 1947 Town and Planning Acts set the basis for town planning for the rest of the century. 25 new towns were built, and today over 2 million people were housed. Nearly 200,000 new homes were built by 1947. Ordinary workers were given good quality homes with space and facilities, and if you remember before the war, many people were still living in the inner cities and the tenements and quite a lot of slum housing still existing. Uh, so these new towns and these new houses are getting built in the outskirts of towns and cities where there's more space, so therefore the homes are a bit bigger, a bit cleaner and a bit fresher. While they're waiting for the more permanent homes to be built, many prefabs were built, and by 1948, nearly 125,000 had been built. The Labour government faced severe shortages and economic problems while trying to build these houses, so they probably did as well as the Liberal government had done after the First World War in trying to build these new homes under severe economic issues. However, there were problems. What did the Act fail to do? Well, the new towns took a lot of time to be built. They did little to ease the immediate housing shortage, and in 1951, by the time that the Labour government had actually lost power, most of the first phase of the buildings were still, uh, the, the new towns were still building sites. In 1947, the currency crisis severely cut the housing building programme, which meant that it slowed right down, again, not really effectively dealing with the housing shortage. When it came to the prefab houses, one of the Labour ministers, Evan Bevan, had called the prefabs rabbit hutch houses as a result of their metal shells, which would get very, very hot in the summer, but very, very cold in the winter. By 1951, at the end of Labour's reign, there was still a serious housing shortage and there was still a high demand for housing that existed. Probably most damning of all, though, there was almost the same level of homelessness as there was at the height of the Depression in 1931 as there was at, after the Second World War. The 1951 census revealed that the gap between the houses and the households in Britain was 750,000, more than what they were at pre-war levels, which suggests that Labour did not effectively deal with the problem of squalor. So if we talk about the successes and the uh, failures overall, 
What can we say? Well, dealing with squalor was the main aim of the Labour government. Bevan, the minister in charge, made sure that the prices for building goods and labour were not allowed to become too expensive. This encouraged more building. The New Towns Act of 1946 planned for 12 new towns. The 1949 Council Act gave help to councils to build more council houses and private homeowners were given help to pay for home improvements. By 1948 and 1951, around 200,000 homes a year were built. The number of houses built does not compare though with the amount built in the 1930s or the 1950s, but the Labour government made real progress at a time when uh, they were short of materials, workers and money. But what were the problems? Well, many of the houses were built on a temporary basis, such as the prefabs. Many families, especially in London, were forced to squat illegally. The government even had to make use of aerodromes which had housed servicemen. And there was not enough housing to cope with the demobilisation of nearly 5 million servicemen and women. So overall, there were serious problems. But is it fair to say that this was a failure? Well, if we think about what some historians have said, most historians agree that Labour had a mixed success in dealing with the housing problems. One of them, J.C. Hess, actually argued, Bevan's record as regards to house building was poorer than that of his Conservative successor after 1951, but it must not be forgotten that he had to face serious financial and material shortages. In the circumstances, Labour's achievement was rather better than is normally painted. Okay, so I'm briefly going to talk you through analysis and analysis plus now. Same as we did with want. Remember, you should be trying to explain why something was effective in tackling the issue of squalor uh, for analysis. And then to counter that for analysis plus. And you can also give two successes or two limitations. As long as these are detailed and lead <coughs> and are follow each other, that will then give you analysis plus. So, in terms of what they did... Around 700,000 council houses were built between 1945 and 51 to provide good quality family accommodation, which is a big improvement for most at a reasonable rent. That's a success, that's analysis plus. You could then counter that by saying poor housing, long waiting lists and homelessness were still serious problems at the end of the Labour administration when they lost power in 1951. That's a limitation. Another limitation, 1951 census revealed that there were 750,000 fewer houses and households in Britain. And this was approximately the same level of homelessness as in 1931, so there wasn't that much improvement in terms of homelessness. That would be another limitation which would give you analysis plus. So remember, probably the easiest way of doing this is to use one of the successes and one of the limitations and then keep the second limitation or any others you find for your new piece of information for evaluation. Hello to both higher classes again. I hope you're doing well. Today, Mr Pless and I are going to talk you through how the Labour government tackled the issue of disease. Okay, so what we'll do, I'll talk you through briefly the start of the NHS and what it offered. Mr Pless will go through the successes and failures and I'll briefly talk to you about analysis and analysis plus. So in 1946, the National Health Act was passed, which would bring the National Health Service into being in 1948. The NHS was to provide universal access, meaning that the NHS was available for everybody. It would be comprehensive, meeting all demands and treating all medical problems. Thirdly, it was to be free at the point of use. No patient would be asked to pay for any treatment. In reality, of course, the service was and is paid for by taxation and the national insurance payments made by every worker. 
Treatment by GPs and in the hospitals was to be free. These benefits were to be free at the point of use and no patient would be asked to pay for any treatment on the spot. I'll hand you over to Mr Pless to look at the successes and failures. Hello everybody, hope you're all well. As we've done for the question of one and as we've done for squalor in our previous chapters, we'll look at the successes and failures of the Labour Health Reforms. So the NHS was set up in 1948, a couple of years after the National Insurance Act was passed. This meant that everyone would have free treatment from GPs, dentists, opticians and hospitals. There would be access to medical services based on need, not ability to pay. Women would probably have gained the most. The group most likely to pay for medical care would be women as a result of the fact that they would be putting up the family and kind of have responsibility as well as obviously costs during pregnancy. There was a huge demand for treatment from doctors and dentists and opticians which patients had not been able to afford to pay for previously and the NHS gave out a huge number of prescriptions, 7 million per month before the NHS rising to 13.5 million per month in September 1948. So, what did the NHS not do? Well, one of the major problems of the NHS was, like we mentioned with the building of homes, was the building of new hospitals. Many of the hospitals that were getting used in the UK at this time were very outdated, still built from the Victorian period, so therefore many of them weren't fit for purpose. You may notice if you go to hospitals today that many of them are actually built in the 1960s. By 1950, the NHS was costing £358 million per year. This was a huge amount and most of the costs came out of general taxation. This can be reviewed in two ways. This can show how many people were in need of the National Health Service and if you're thinking about many people who would not have went to doctors before as a result of having to pay for them, it means that uh, people on lower incomes would be more likely to use the NHS. But the downside to the NHS was the fact that this was a huge drain on the amount of money that the UK had and it meant it would have an impact on how Labour would effectively deal with some of the other issues. The government was not actually able to totally deliver a totally free service. They had hoped to actually have a free service for GPs, dentists, opticians and hospitals as we said and Bevan had asked for this to be comprehensive and to be universal and to be free at the point of entry. But unfortunately, this simply wasn't the case, and charges were actually soon introduced for glasses and for dental treatment after the economic decline in 1947. So overall, the successes and the failures of how effectively Labour dealt with the question of disease. To summarise, the National Health Service Act of 1946 gave free medical, dental and eye services to all. The NHS was a huge improvement in the lives of ordinary people, especially women, but many of the hospitals were old and not suitable for modern healthcare. It was incredibly expensive and the financial pressures on the government meant that most old hospitals were not replaced. The building of the new hospitals didn't really begin until the 1960s. And lastly, the NHS was probably a victim of its own success. So many people used the NHS that it became too expensive for the government to fund out of taxes alone. Prescriptions where charges were introduced in 1951. So when you're looking at this question, you'll need to think about the benefits to the cost and uh, which one actually was more successful or more of a failure. Just to give, again, a historian's point of view, 
on the successes of uh, Labour's uh, NHS and how well Labour dealt with this, we've got one of the MPs at the time, okay, uh, one of the historians, sorry, who actually said the NHS represented the jewel in the crown of Britain's welfare state, and probably today it's still argued that the biggest success is uh, of the Labour reforms was the NHS, and it's still something that today we're still fe very fiercely proud about. Okay, so I'm going to very briefly talk to you about analysis, analysis plus, and then kind of lead on to evaluation. So obviously, as in the previous two giants we've looked at, you should be trying to give an achievement and then a limitation. Now, obviously, the main thing you see for analysis for this is the NHS is considered the greatest single achievement in the development of the welfare state as it meant healthcare was no longer based on your ability to pay. Okay, this has never been done before, so that's analysis, that's an achievement. You could then go on for a limitation for your analysis plus to say, however, the, the issue of treatment was much, much bigger than the Labour government had originally planned, and they had to go back on a lot of the promises that they'd made, so that they had to introduce a lot of prescription charges which were not part of the original promise. Now, Mr Place mentioned the statement there from the historian who said it was the jewel in the crown of the welfare state. So when you're coming to evaluation, that would be a great piece of information to add in as your new bit of information. And when you're looking at overall how well this was tackled, you would have to say that largely this was successful. And if you're looking for more than two out of four evaluation marks, at this point you would certainly compare to other giants how well they were tackled by saying that this was probably the best that any of the giants were tackled by the Labour government. Hello and welcome to both the higher history classes. Today Mr Place and I are going to talk you through the Labour government's attempts to tackle the issue of ignorance, which of course is lack of education. I'll hand over to Mr Place in a minute or two who will start talking about the successes and failures of the attempts to tackle ignorance and then come back to me very briefly to talk about analysis, analysis plus and evaluation. So to start, 1944, the wartime coalition government, which was a government made up of different political parties, passed the Education Act. The Act was actually proposed by the Conservatives, but after the 1945 general election, which Labour won, they implemented its measures. The Butler Act made secondary education compulsory until the age of 15 years and provided meals, milk and medical services at every school. An examination at 11 years called the 11 plus place children in certain types of schools according to their ability. Those who got the best marks in this exam would go to senior secondary or grammar schools as they're known in England and were expected to stay on after 15 years and possibly go into university and get jobs in management. Children who failed the exam went to a junior secondary or a technical school and were not expected to stay at school after 15 years and they were expected to get unskilled types of employment. A wee personal example of that would be my mum who passed the 11 plus and in Inverclyde went to one of the better schools known as Greenock High School and went on to get her higher education and go on to university. My dad failed his 11 plus, went to a technical school or junior secondary known as The Mount. He then left school at 15 to go and get an apprenticeship in the shipyards. That's not typical of every pass or fail of the 11 plus, but it gives it an example of the different paths that could be taken depending on whether or not you passed that exam. I'll pass over now to Mr Pless, who's going to go through the successes and failures. Hello everybody, hope you're all well. Now, as we have done previously in looking at the Labour welfare reforms and how well and how successful they were at tackling the social giants of want, uh, 
squalor and disease. We'll now go through and see how successful the labour reforms were in dealing with the social giant of ignorance and we'll see what their educational reforms were. So as before, we'll look at what they did and what they didn't do and we'll look at the overall successes and failures. So what did they do? Well, the labour educational reforms meant that secondary education was now compulsory until the age of 15. School meals, milk and medical services were now provided at every school and by 1950, 1,176 new schools had been built. 928 of these were actually primary schools that were dealing with the new baby boom that had happened at the end of the Second World War. Pupils no longer had to pay fees to go to the grammar schools and if you went to a grammar school, they provided a high quality education that actually prepared pupils for university, as Mr Common has mentioned earlier on. Getting to a grammar school meant that you were able to have better resources, you would have had well-trained teachers and you would have had smaller class sizes as well. Due to a teacher shortage, 35,000 new teachers were trained under the one-year emergency training scheme between the years of 1945 and 1951 as well. But what problems were there with the labour education reforms? Well, sadly, there was actually quite a lot. The reforms didn't actually support children as the individuals. In secondary, there were two types of learner, classed as the academic and the non-academic, and everyone had to fit into one of those categories. To be able to fit into these categories, as Mr Cumberland has mentioned before, what would happen is there would be an examination called the 11 plus exam. This was seen as socially divisive, as we're going to see in a, a couple of moments. Now, when talking about the 11 plus exam, if you're thinking about the paths that people are going to be taking, this is a decision of what path you're going to take at the age of 11. It seems very, very young and it was highly criticised for the fact that the decision on whether or not you're going to be classed as academic or if you're going to get classed as non-academic was going to actually happen at such a young age. Not only this, it seemed to actually split the population in terms of what class you were in. The opportunities, okay, weren't actually there for all, particularly for people from a working class background. Only 20% could actually go to grammar schools and only 5% of places were available in the technical schools. 75% of all school children were classified as non-academic and they were sent to the low status secondary moderns or the junior secondary schools. Most grammar school places were taken by middle class children. Most of the working class children left school at the age of 15 with few qualifications to embark on their working lives. Pupils going to a secondary modern actually had little chance of going on to higher education because their schools concentrated on the practical subjects. And if you think of the impact that that would have on later life, it would mean that many people who went to the junior secondary schools would end up doing the lower paid jobs, whereas those who are going to be in the management positions and jobs would have went to grammar schools because of their enhanced education. So we see that kind of clear split between if you are kind of from a wealthier middle class background to those who are going to be in a lower income working class background. In terms of the amount of investment that Labour actually introduced to the educational reforms, it didn't match how much investment there was in health and in social security. And this can maybe be seen in the school buildings that were actually provided. New schools were built, but they were largely for the primary children, as mentioned, due to the baby boom generation.
Secondary schools actually were neglected as a result of many people only having an education, secondary education, for a short period of time. Therefore, they were mostly neglected. So to summarise the overall successes and failures of how well Labour dealt with ignorance, let's review a few more uh, a few points that we've covered. The Butler Education Act of 1944 was a radical advance in education. It raised the school leaving age, so it's classed as a, as a success. An appropriate education was provided for every school pupil, which again can be classed as a success. And then finally, though I've mentioned that the fact that more school buildings were getting built, this was something that was ambitious, but it obviously took a lot of time. If we're to look at the negatives though, in practice, the Education Act was not fair. Few working class children had the chance to go to an academic school and the type of school you went to tended to affect your later opportunities for jobs. There was no attempt to solve the differences in educational provision across the country and the school building programme only concentrated on the primary schools to cope with the baby boom. So therefore, only 250 secondary schools had been built by the 1950s. Okay, so to briefly talk through Analysis Plus, unlike previous examples when we've tried to look at a positive and then a negative, as this giant was largely unsuccessfully tackled by the Labour government, we're going to do one and then another negative, okay? So, obviously you could talk about the fact that the 11 plus um, as a selection procedure limited places at secondary, senior secondary and grammar schools. So even some of the top level were badly affected. And you could then go on by saying that little was done to enhance the opportunities for those who would have always had a poor opportunity based on lack of academic studies. So therefore, you could take, take it further and explain that because a lot of pupils would have left at the age of 15 anyway, they had received an inferior education, therefore were limited with their opportunities for jobs after. Hello and welcome to both higher history classes. Today we're going to look at the final part of our Five Giants Mini Lessons podcast. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at idleness, which is unemployment and lack of jobs. We'll do the same as we've done the last few. What I'll do is I'll explain briefly the, the knowledge points and what was done. Mr. Pless will go through the successes and failures. Come back to me, we'll talk about analysis, analysis plus and evaluation very quickly. And then what we'll do is we'll hand back to Mr. Pless who's going to sum it all up by looking at a couple of historians' views of how well the Labour government tackled the five giants. So, to idleness. After the war, there seemed to be work for everybody as Britain rebuilt itself after the war. The Labour government succeeded in commitment to maintain high levels of employment after the war had finished. By 1946, unemployment was reduced to 2.5% of the population, and this was in spite of huge post-war problems such as shortages of raw materials and massive war debts. One way in which the government kept almost full employment was through nationalisation. Following the principles of the economist John Maynard Keynes, the government took control of certain industries such as iron and steel manufacture. Under the managed economy, the government used tax money to keep an industry afloat even if it faced economic difficulties. I'll hand over to Mr Pless, who's going to go through the success and failures. Hi everybody, hope you're all well. Now, just as we've done with the previous four Labour uh, welfare reforms dealing with the previous social giants, uh, we'll talk about what the Labour reforms did in dealing with the social giant of idleness, uh, and we'll see what they did do, what they didn't do, and then we'll do our overall success and uh, problems with these reforms. So, 
What did the Labour reforms for Ireland's do? Well, despite the shortages and massive debts, the Labour government managed to grow and develop the country. One of the key ways they did this was through the nationalisation of key industries which helped to, help to create and to maintain job levels. Many of the nationalised industries included in 1946 the Bank of England and the Civil Aviation, 1947 the National Coal Board, Cables and Wireless, in 1948, the British Transport Commission, which dealt with road and rail. The Electricity Board. In 1949, the Gas Board was nationalised. And in 1950, the iron and steel industry was also nationalised. The government also put in place other important economic policies. There was a conversion of work industries to peacetime work, the rapid demobilisation of the workforce serving in the armed forces, and there was policies for regional areas to make sure that workers were encouraged to go to places around the country where the jobs actually were. The government also took control of the economy, which meant that short-term difficulties for an industry did not lead to job losses. And this was one of the key points about the nationalisation. It was to make sure that most people would have access to a job. In development areas, unemployment actually fell from 22% in 1937 to single figures by 1947, which shows that there was success here. By 1946, national unemployment was actually only at 2.5%, meaning that the majority of people in Britain were now actually in work. But how did this equate to actually people in their uh, everyday lives? Well, what the Labour reforms for idleness actually didn't do was improve the actual living conditions for people that much. Wages and working conditions did not improve a great deal, and some industries like coal were actually inefficient and actually costing the country lots of money to actually stay open. Much of the coal was now actually getting uh, imported from other countries and British coal was actually seen as very, very expensive and many countries actually weren't taking British coal, which meant many of the pits started to become not profitable. Some industries did not improve profitability because they were supported by the government, which meant that many people who were actually working in these uh, many of these nationalised areas, it meant that these nationalised uh, industries were not actually pushing to their uh, maximum potential as a result of the majority of people now actually able to actually have a job and be supported by the government. So if we look at the overall success and the overall failures of the question of how effectively did Labour deal with the problem of idleness, we could summarise the successes as such. The Labour government actively promoted a policy of full employment to help support the welfare state. The Labour government nationalised key industries to help them reach their full employment. There was almost full employment after the war, despite the post-war economic depression and shortages of goods and materials, and the unemployment figure was only around 2.5%. The problems, though, were that the British economy and jobs depended heavily on loans and aid that was given by America. When it came to the question of work for men and women, women actually found themselves out of jobs when the demobbed servicemen came home. Many women were happy to become housewives again, but some found themselves excluded from jobs that they would have liked to have continued to have done. So to look at Analysis Analysis Plus, 
Again, a good way of doing it is a success then countered by a limitation. So we could go with unprofitable industries were subsidised in order to keep, keep people in work, keeping employment, unemployment low, ensuring the government's commitment to keeping and creating jobs. So a success there for analysis. For analysis plus, you could say, despite this, nationalisation did little to improve working efficiency in these industries. Supported by taxation money, these industries had little incentive to be profitable. As such, wages and working conditions remained generally unimproved. So overall, suggesting they didn't work. For your evaluation, obviously, you would need to look at a kind of balanced overall argument whether or not it worked or not to tackle this giant. So you could talk about the fact that they did keep unemployment rates pretty low. However, for a new bit of information, you could say that nationalisation affected the post-war British economy. I talk about the fact that the British government was relying on American Marshall aid money. Working conditions did not improve, wages remained low, and later the Conservative government also managed to keep unemployment low. So it was successful to an extent, but there were major, major problems with it. So to finish off this segment, we've been looking at the five giants. Mr Place is going to give you a brief summary looking at what some historians have viewed. So, we've looked now at the five uh, welfare reforms to tackle the five social giants highlighted by William Beveridge earlier on. And by now, you have now got uh, both successes and failures for each of the five of them. So you might be considering now, and you might already have started to shape your idea as to which ones were maybe more successful than the others. Certainly what we start to see here is that Within the labour welfare reforms, there are certainly successes, but there's also certainly failures as well. And not all of the welfare reforms in each of the areas that we looked at are going to be exactly the same in how successful labour actually were. So to help you kind of consider your overall kind of point of view to this overall arching question of how well did uh, the labour welfare reforms meet the needs of the British people, We'll go through some opinions of some historians who have actually kind of uh, considered this particular point. I'll give you a couple of uh, people, uh, historians who are actually in favour of the Labour reforms and what they said, and then I'll give an overall kind of point of view. So our first person, okay, our first historian, uh, a guy called uh, P.J. Madwick, actually argued poverty was not abolished, but there was no doubt that the number of people seriously lacking in food Clothing, shelter and warmth was substantially reduced compared with the 1930s. And remember, the 1930s is the kind of marker that we look at due to the Second World War starting in 1939. We've also got Peter Hennessy, who argued that the 5th of July 1948 was Welfare State Day. The health service came into being and the new social security laws came into force. For many, life was never the same again. It was simply better. None of the frustrations, disappointments or cash crises in subsequent years can detract from that. However, folk who are critical of the labour reforms, such as Corelli Barnett, actually argued that there were too many problems with the labour welfare reforms. She argues, Why did Bevan and his advisors completely fail to carry out an analysis of the likely demands along with a calcula calculation of the resources needed? Could it be that given Britain's precarious finances, even a cabinet de dedicated to the New Jerusalem might have hesitated if presented with a realistic estimate of the cost of the NHS? So it's obviously someone there who is all critical of the sheer cost that they uh, tackling with the issue of disease was. So finally, to give a final point of view, we're going to look at uh, 
and a historian P. Thane, who argued, The social reforms of the Labour government were a great improvement in what had gone before, but they were only a first step. The post-war Labour governments can claim to have established a welfare state because they set up the universal provision of healthcare, social security and education. It was a new approach to the use of power of the state in the interest of social justice for the mass of the population. So overall, what we can argue is, yes, Labour have made a welfare state that has many successes, but obviously there are many problems with it as well, and it's now up to you to decide how well Labour met the needs of the British people with their welfare reforms.